Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Advancements in forensic technology have really spotlighted some flaws in our justice system, including the uncomfortable number of innocent people on death row. Did you know that since 1973, a new look at old evidence has exonerated nearly 200 Americans who had scheduled dates with an executioner? And if we can presume that technology is better in this last half century than the century before, how can we help but wonder the number of people incorrectly put to death in our country's history? It's a topic that has always fascinated me. I've got a case out of Shelby County tonight. The Shelby County Historical Society did a lot of research on this one. Plus, newspapers all over Ohio followed every twist and turn of this case. It's the conviction of two men for the killing of a store owner named William Legg in 1907. One was executed, one was not. Even today, some consider it the most notorious murder case from Shelby's county seat of Sydney, and it was debated for years because the man that was selected for execution dramatically pleaded his innocence even as he was strapped into the electric chair. Here's the story. In 1907, William Legg, a butcher by trade, and his wife had come to Sydney from Indiana. They'd been in town about eight years and operated a small meat market on West Michigan Street, to which their living quarters were attached. April 20 was a Saturday, and after a long day, Mrs. Legg, who wasn't a well woman but did what she could at the shop, finished her business chores and went to the living quarters, leaving behind her husband and their clerk, Garney Woodruff. The last customer of the day was John Roberts, who lived next door. And after he left, the clerk ended his shift, and Mr. Legg was left alone to close up. It was 10 p.m. 
Just a few minutes after Roberts and Woodruff had departed, two men with guns drawn appeared at the front door of the store. They demanded money. Mr. Legg wasn't in a mind to give it. He fought back, and two gunshots rang out. John Roberts, the customer who lived next door, responded to the sound, and he saw Mr. Legg fall in the doorway. He screamed, and one of the gunmen turned toward him and fired. The bullet missed, clipping some bark off a shade tree near his face. Roberts ducked to safety, but continued to watch as the two men entered the store. One man looted the money drawer, while the other man frisked the pockets of the dead owner. Then the killer stepped over the body in the doorway and made a hasty retreat north on Linden Avenue. The community was outraged. The Sydney Daily News the next day said, The shooting of Mr. Legg was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder and one of the most atrocious crimes ever committed in the history of Shelby County. And the paper reflected the sentiments of residents who were so charged up, it was pretty clear if any potential suspect were to be caught, he'd be lucky to make it to trial. But there was actually very little to go on. It was dark, and John Roberts, as well as others who saw the men running from the crime scene, couldn't give police any description other than to say one gunman was tall with a stiff hat and the other short with a slouch hat. The police chief at the time was a man named O'Leary, and Chief O'Leary passed that brief description on to train conductors passing through Sydney, as well as other area police departments. The morning after the shooting in Sydney, a police detective named Daniel Kelly in the city of Lima, Ohio, that's about 40 miles away, arrived at work to find a dispatch describing the tall man and the short man wanted for murder. The 30-year-old Kelly decided to take a walk around town to see if he could spot a couple of guys who looked like that. He moseyed down Main Street, and lo and behold, there they were, a tall man with a stiff hat and a short man with a slouch hat, and they were walking in his direction across the town square. According to the newspaper account, Kelly let the two men pass him. Then he turned in their direction, came up behind them quickly, and grabbed each by the collar of their coats. You fellows come along with me. I want you both, he said. The taller man demanded to know who Kelly was. Kelly freed a hand to open his coat and show his badge. That's when the freed man tried to make a break while reaching into his pocket for what Kelly assumed was a gun. Shoot him, one suspect shouted to the other. Kelly reacted quickly, punching one suspect and knocking him to the ground while keeping hold of the other. Kelly subdued them both while calling to two men nearby, P.T. Mel and Earl Bressler, and those men helped get them to the Sydney jail. Back at the station, the two men were searched. The tall man gave the name of Frank Earl and said he was 26. He had a 38 caliber revolver on him. The smaller man identified himself as 31-year-old Frank Wagner, and he had a 32 caliber gun. Between them, they had about $30 in cash and change, 
reportedly about the same amount of money that had been taken from the store in Sydney. Back in Sydney, Chief O'Leary quickly hopped the next train to Lima. He was content to leave the suspects right where they were because he knew a mob was already forming back home. So the interrogation took place in Lima. Earl and Walker were separated and questioned for hours. The Daily News called it the sweating process. When they refused to admit to the murder and robbery, they were stripped of their clothes and questioned some more. They were never offered attorneys. As one day turned into the next, Walker had enough. He confessed to being one of the two men in Sydney the night Leg was killed, but insisted Earl was the one who had fired both shots. A Lima hardware merchant named J.J. Ewing identified the gun Earl was carrying as the gun stolen from his store the previous Monday. O'Leary proclaimed it the murder weapon. And the owners of a hardware store in Sydney traveled to Lima and identified the two suspects as the men who had purchased cartridges from their store the day before Mr. Legg was killed. Mr. Legg's neighbor, John Roberts, he also traveled to Lima to identify the two men. While his previous description had been limited to their height and hat style, he positively identified Frank Earl as the man in the store doorway who shot the butcher in the chest. As expected, the citizens of Sydney were ready to lynch somebody. Hundreds of men gathered at the train depot, waiting for Earl and Walker to arrive. But Chief O'Leary knew this script. Earl and Walker were taken to jails in different counties and given a 24-hour guard. Earl and Walker were both tramps who traveled the rail lines, hopping from freight train to freight train. Walker told police he considered his home base Toledo, though he had no home there. He said he had only met Earl the previous week in Lima. They had both taken shelter in the same barn south of the city, and that they traveled to Sydney together by train. In Sydney, they stayed in a tramps camp north of town and went to Legs Meat Market to purchase some meat. That's what gave them the idea to go back and rob him. They waited till Saturday, expecting Mr. Leg would have more money from a full week of business and no bank to take it to. Walker admitted he had a gun, but said he would never have shot anyone and would certainly not have joined Earl in the robbery if he thought Earl capable of murder. Walker said they waited outside the store for it to empty of everyone except the owner. Then the plan was for Earl to go inside and demand the money while Walker stayed outside as the lookout. But Mr. Leg didn't cooperate. When Earl demanded the money, the butcher kicked at Earl and Earl pulled the trigger twice, shooting him in the groin and the chest. Walker said afterward they ran through town with Earl waving his gun at anyone who looked their way. But then Earl pointed the gun in his direction and insisted they stick together. Then they hopped a northbound train for Lima. Earl had a different version. He said he was homeless but was no stranger to Lima. He'd spent quite a bit of time there and was even a street vendor of collar and shirt buttons. 
Earl confirmed he had just recently met Walker. He insisted he didn't steal the gun from that hardware store, that it was too easy to beg for money to risk stealing it, and that he only carried the gun because the bums on the lakeshore rails were tough and would stick up a man for his clothes. And Earl said not only wasn't he the one who shot Mr. Legg, he wasn't even there. Walker had made the whole thing up. Both Earl and Wagner admitted to using aliases. As a matter of fact, authorities will learn Frank Earl was really Howard West, and Frank Wagner was really Frank Whiting. But I'm not going to confuse the matter. Let's keep calling them Earl and Walker. Authorities also learned Earl had a record for theft and drunken disorderly convictions. He'd served time in prisons in Illinois and New Jersey. As a matter of fact, during his incarceration in Illinois, he purposely slipped two of the fingers of his left hand into a machine, hoping to injure himself and get out of being assigned to a work crew. Unfortunately for him, his arm was attached to those fingers, and the machine pulled him in and shredded him up to the elbow. But reporters said he appeared to be quite adept with his gun hand, the right hand, as they watched him roll a cigarette with no trouble. Detective Kelly and Lima Police Chief Mills traveled to Sydney for a look at the crime scene, and they got a hero's welcome. As word circulated of their arrival, hundreds of people swarmed them, then followed in a procession as they marched from the police station to Mr. Legg's store. Later, the citizens of Sydney and Lima even created the Kelly Appreciation Fund and raised some $100 to give to Kelly to show their appreciation. After all, he had apprehended two armed murderers without even drawing a weapon, and had found them less than 12 hours after they had done the deed. Six days after Legg's murder, a special grand jury was seated and quickly indicted the pair for the murder. Judge Hugh Mathers said he intended to move things quickly along. He had trouble finding a local defense attorney willing to take the case. Nobody wanted to touch this with a 10-foot pole. After several attorneys declined his request, he appointed someone. He named Percy Taylor and Hugh Dorley to represent Earl, while Charles Hall handled Walker's case. Earl's trial was set for June 14. Walker's would be held a week later. The police had decided to believe Walker's version of events, but not everyone was buying it. The prosecutor, Charles Marshall, and his co-counsel, J.D. Barnes, had their doubts, as some of the facts didn't seem to fit. Suspicious, they had several doctors reevaluate Mr. Legg's body to look for that second bullet that had never been recovered, and this time they found it. And it was a thirty-two caliber, like the gun Walker had been carrying when he was arrested in Lima. Still, the prosecutor agreed to offer Walker the plea deal, a recommendation of life instead of death, for testifying against Earl. The trial date was fast approaching, and Earl's attorneys were filing all the motions one might expect. They wanted a change of venue. After all, this community had talked about lynching their client, 
And this is where the Daily News had written, The guilty parties have been captured, and all that is left to do now is to speedily punish them. The defense also asked for more time to prepare their defense. The judge was in such a hurry, but every motion was overruled, and the trial began on its original date, with Frank Earle fighting for his life. The courtroom was packed with several hundred spectators, and despite the prosecution's own suspicions about Walker, they pressed on. The state's case revolved around the version of facts as he had presented them. Frank Earle did not take the stand in his own defense. Earle, by the way, was not without fans. Reporters commented that he cleaned up well after a bath and time away from the whiskey. He proved to be downright handsome. He was well-behaved, appropriately humbled, and even charming. He wore a flower in his lapel during the trial, and there were many young women who attended the trial just to see him, some of them sending gifts to the defense table. One report said he was rarely at trial without a box of bonbons at his elbow. But he knew things didn't look good. One afternoon, after he was walked back to jail when the trial had adjourned for the day, he was asked how he felt. He said, not very good. Everything is breaking bad for me. In spite of the early mob that seemed ready to lynch any suspect that was revealed to them, the town as a whole was opposed to capital punishment. No matter. Frank Walker didn't need fans. He had his plea deal, and he had his family. Even though he was too ashamed to contact them and ask for help, they found out and came to town for the trial anyway. And it was only through them that the community learned Frank Walter was actually Frank Whiting, the son of a prominent and affluent Illinois doctor and the brother of a Baptist minister. They were among a large contingent of family who traveled to Ohio to be present for their black sheep. After Frank Earl's trial wound up, it took the jury two hours to reach a verdict of guilty with a recommendation for no mercy. Judge Mathers was happy to oblige. Death by electrocution, Mathers announced. Frank Earl's date with the executioner was scheduled for November 29, 1907, the day after Thanksgiving, of all days. A week after Earl's trial concluded, Frank Walker was granted his deal and pled guilty to second-degree murder for a sentence of life in prison. After death was decreed for Frank Earl, the appeals began. The most serious allegation was that a juror seated in the trial had already made up his mind before the first gavel. A Sydney resident named Mrs. Frank Fote submitted an affidavit that juror S.D. Young had said before trial, if I am a juror in this case, I would never leave the jury box until he was convicted. Given that revelation, Earl's attorneys asked for a new trial. Judge Mathers denied it. They asked for a new trial based on the fact that Earl had never been offered an attorney during interrogation. Judge Mathers denied it. The defense team continued to investigate and was able to produce a number of affidavits establishing an alibi for Earl on the night of April 20. Even Frank Walker, 
who testified against him in that plea deal, signed an affidavit saying Earl wasn't with him at the scene of the crime. The Walker did later recant that signed affidavit. The new statements did no good. The appeals court held up the verdict, and the Ohio Supreme Court refused to hear the case. The day before Earl was to be killed, there was a brief ray of sunshine for him. His execution date was postponed to December 20, giving him time to make his case before the Ohio Board of Pardons. You can imagine what good news this must have seemed. It was the first time the defense had any request granted. The pardon board met December 5 and debated long into the night, examining the affidavits and reviewing the case file. But in the end, they turned down the appeal, saying the affidavits submitted by Earl's alibi witnesses weren't specific enough to be credible. So there was only one option left an appeal to Ohio Governor Andrew Harris to commute the death sentence to life in prison. The appeal was made in person by Earl's two brothers. When the governor declined to interfere, it was said the two brothers stood outside the executive's office and sobbed. On December 20, eight months after William Legge had been shot to death in his meat market, 30 spectators gathered at the Ohio Penitentiary to watch Frank Earl die. Earl's head was shaved, a look that inmates called the toilet of death. He was calm as he was led to the chair in a room that newspapers called the theater of horror. He was strapped into the chair. Detective Kelly, the man who captured Earl and Walker, was there to witness the execution. Earl acknowledged him, saying Kelly had given him a raw deal. Earl never swayed from his claim of innocence and continued to speak for it. He told those who had come to watch him die, I am paying the penalty for a crime committed by another man. I realize I am being punished because of my past record. His face was covered by a hood. Beneath it, Earl could be heard vocalizing his final thoughts. I ask God to forgive me for all my sins. At 12.06 a.m., a switch was flipped, 1,750 volts. It wasn't enough to kill him. They gave him a second charge, 1,500 volts. He still lived. It was reported witnesses couldn't bear to look at the living corpse anymore and turned away. They had to jolt him a third time to stop his heart. Anyway, I thought I'd share a not really related anecdote that I found on the very helpful Shelby County Historical Society website, but it was a nugget of history worth repeating. Before Frank Earle's execution, the last Shelby County case to end in a death sentence was more than half a century earlier when a farmer named Alfred Artis was hung in 1855 for the death of his 12-year-old daughter, Emma. It was reported that Artis was so determined not to be hanged, he threw himself on the steps that led to the scaffolding and clung for all his worth. He was a big man, and they couldn't budge him. They had to beat him unconscious so they could finish dragging him to the gallows and tossing him through the hole. 
Since Earl's execution had taken place at the penitentiary, Artis's hanging is actually the only public execution ever to be held in Shelby County. That's it for our 10-minute mystery. We'll see you next Sunday for our next full episode. Until then, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.